Hollywood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. And I would invite you now to take out your Bibles and turn in them in the New Testament, actually, to 1 Corinthians chapter number 10. And if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, you could find one under a chair in front of you, and you could turn in that Bible in the back to page 135, and you would be at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, it's a snowy day out there, and, and we probably should, we should play some games. Isn't that what you do when it's snowy outside? How many people have ever played the word association game? Let me see some hands. A number of you have your hands up. You know, that's the game where you hear a word, and then you reply with the first thing that comes to mind. And if I could just illustrate what that might look like, if I were to say the word dawn, you might say the word day. If I were to say the word star, you might say the word sun. If I were to say the word revelation, you might respond with the word Bible. If I were to say the word beginnings, you might respond with the word Genesis. If I were to say the name Jacob, you might respond with the word Israel. And if I were going to say the name Joseph, most of us would respond with, yeah, I've already heard it, coat. His coat of many colors. You know, it's kind of interesting when you think about the coat that we most often associate with Joseph and you look at a number of the translations of the Bible, they describe it a lot of different ways. One of them describes his coat as a very colored tunic. Another one describes it as a richly ornamented robe. Another one says that his coat was a brightly colored coat. And another translation describes it this way, spectacularly colorful. And there's no doubt in my mind, when you look at the Bible, that Joseph is the first fashionista in all of Scripture. And it's a sure bet that if there was a Mr. Fashion Award in the land of Canaan, that Joseph would be the one who would win that Mr. Fashion Award. And if they were putting together in the land of Canaan a fashion reality show, I can tell you who the top candidate would be to be featured and starred on that show, and that would be Joseph himself. You know, the story of Joseph was actually put together in a musical by Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber that hit Broadway in 1982 entitled Joseph and the Fascinating Technicolor Dream Coat. And his, actually, it was amazing Technicolor Dream Coat. And, and then after that musical, it was followed by a full-length movie starring none other than Donny Osmond as Joseph. And what's really interesting is we have that common association. We think of Joseph, and the number one word that comes to mind is coat. And you know, when our focus falls on his spectacularly colorful coat or his rich ornamental robe, you know really what we're doing? We're, we're experiencing a micro-focus on one verse of the book of Genesis, and that's chapter 37 and verse 3. Where the reality is, is, if you just pull back for a moment and you look at the life of Joseph, his whole story spans 13 chapters, 418 
verses. And so what happens is, if we're just restricted down to Joseph's coat, we're really going to miss much of his life, and we're going to miss most of the lessons that God has for us when it comes to the life of Joseph. You know, Joseph is the ultimate riches to rags to riches to rags to riches story in all of the world. And so what we're going to be doing beginning today is launching a new series that we have entitled Hope Through Hardship, Lessons from the Life of Joseph. And we're just starting that today. We're really glad that you're here. And what we're really going to accomplish this morning is to introduce ourselves to the life of Joseph. Now, I'm going to be very transparent with you. I have been sweating for several weeks because this is a big portion of Scripture to get your arms around. It's been one of the hardest things I've ever tackled because I want to understand it all so that I can share with you some of the perspective I think God has for us, but it's been hard. It's been very, very difficult. And before we actually look at 1 Corinthians 10, I just simply want us to read all the way through Genesis 37, all the way through chapter 50. Let's go ahead and just tackle 418 verses in our scripture reading this morning. All right, are you ready? Nah, that's not the plan. You know, if we were going to do that, it would certainly set the all-time Sunday morning record for a scripture reading uh, in a worship service. But we're not actually going to do that as part of our plan. We do have a plan, though, and that is to look at four things today as we launch our study on hope through hardship, lessons from the life of Joseph. Number one, we're going to take a few moments to get some divine context on this story. Because you might say, why are we bothering doing this? I mean, this is a guy who lived 39 centuries ago. What am I going to learn today that's going to have any impact in my life from some guy who lived 39 centuries ago? Second thing we're going to do is talk a little bit for a few moments about the emphasis given to Joseph in the Bible. And then we're going to spend some time actually today meeting Joseph. And then the fourth thing we're going to do as we come to a close, is to look at some key principles that will help guide us through our study of the life of Joseph. So let's begin by looking at some divine context, and that's why we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter number 10, and I would like to direct your attention to verse 11 there in chapter 10. Paul writes and he says, now these things happened to them. And what he's referring to would be the people who were part of the Old Testament, the people who were part of the Hebrew scriptures, the people from many centuries ago. And he says, these things happened to them as an example. The things that happened in the Old Testament happened as an example for me and an example for you. These things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction. In other words, what happened way back in those pages in the Old Testament was written for us to give us instruction, instruction about the truth about God and the truth about us. By looking at that, we can learn more about who he is. We can learn more about how he works in our life. 
by seeing how he worked in Joseph's life. By, by, by going back and looking at these things, we can learn that part of God's plan for someone who knows him is to utilize hardship in our life. And so it's important that we learn. The context is that we're to look at the example, we're to learn from it, we're to get instruction from it. Now, turn a few pages to the left in your Bible to the end of Romans, to chapter 15 of Romans. And I want us to look in a parallel statement here in chapter 15 at verse 4. Romans 15, 4. Paul writes here to the Romans and he says, whatever was written in earlier times, and again, he's talking about what happens in the Hebrew scriptures, the, the, what we call the Old Testament, what happened in those centuries before was written for our instruction. There's that idea again. God put it there so that we could learn something from it. And he goes on to say, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. As we go back and look at some of these events, such as what happened in the life of Joseph, we can get some insight into what it means to persevere when hardship happens to us. We can gain some hope by looking at what happened to him. We can get a sense of how God was at work and how God is at work not only in his life but in our life and what he wants to accomplish in his plan for our life. So that just sets a little divine context around our series. The, the second thing we said we wanted to look at this morning is to take a few moments to look at the emphasis given to Joseph. And I'll tell you something, it's, it's really startling when you take a moment to step back and look at it. There, there's a whole lot more in the book of Genesis about Joseph than about Adam and Eve. And you know, the whole founding of the race and and all the very beginnings of everything, and the fall and the sin, there's a whole lot more about Joseph than there is about that. There's a whole lot more about Joseph than we even read about Noah. And remember, Noah was, was the one who had the, the ark as God judged the whole world and wiped out millions of people in judgment. There's more about Joseph than there is about that. There's more about Joseph than there is about Abraham, who is the father of our faith. In fact, more than 25% of the book of beginnings or the book of Genesis is about Joseph. Now, let me ask you a question. Why? Why? Why does God do that? More than 25% of the book is the life of Joseph. Why? Because he was a fashionista and he had a cool coat? Because he has a, a cool story where it, he ends up on top, the number two guy in all the world? Why so much on Joseph? I think part of the answer to that is that Joseph experienced deep hardship in his life. And that's the kind of thing we experience. Joseph faced a pile of difficulties and disappointments. 
He faced a pile of detours and delays in his life. And some of us are right in the middle of those things right now. His life was touched by dysfunction and deception and resentment. And many of us have experienced those things just even in the last couple of years. He came face to face in his life with rejection and isolation and false accusation. Why so much on Joseph? Well, I think part of the answer is that he is really the poster child for life on this planet. That's the kind of life that we experience. And it's very valuable to look carefully at his story because he found hope through the hardship that he experienced in his life. And so our goal in launching this study is to mine the rich vein of reality that he went through so that we too might persevere, so that we too might find encouragement and hope through hardship. Now, the third thing we said we were going to do today was to spend some time meeting Joseph. And actually, Joseph appears in the book of Genesis in chapter number 37, and when he appears, he is 17 years old. And there's a lot of background. And so what I want us to do in the next few minutes together is to let Joseph introduce himself and his family to us. So if you're not too frozen out, uh, just use your imagination cap and imagine in the next few minutes that I am Joseph, and I am introducing myself and my family to you. So Joseph says, I guess you could accurately say that I came from a dysfunctional family. I've seen enough in my short lifetime to understand why my father, Jacob, sometimes gets discouraged and depressed, but that's just a small part of his long and difficult life. It's sometimes hard to believe some of the things that he has told me. You know, much of my family history has been filled with strife and tension. Since my dad, Jacob, dedicated his life to serve God not too many years ago, he's been a lot more open with me about his sins and his failures when he was younger. My grandfather, Isaac, and my grandmother, Rebecca, they had their own set of problems, they made a great start in trusting and serving God, but as Dad has often shared with me, they got sidetracked from doing God's will. Now, please don't misunderstand. Dad is not blaming his parents for his mistakes, and, and neither am I at all. In fact, I had the opportunity to meet my grandfather Isaac before he died when we all returned here to the land of Canaan. He was a grand old guy who lived to be 180 and I could sense that he really regretted his sins and mistakes that caused so much pain in our family. Well, what happened, you ask? Well, it's a rather long and involved story, but let me share what I remember from the many conversations I've had with my dad, particularly as we set out under the stars at night. See those stars, son, my dad Jacob would say? And then he'd reflect on something that happened years ago to my great-grandfather, Abraham. You see, God called my great-grandfather out of the land where I was born. 
He was a pagan. He, he was an idolater. And he didn't even know the one true God. But Yahweh simply appeared to him and made him a wonderful promise. One night, after my great-grandfather and his family arrived here in Canaan, out under the stars, God promised Abraham that his children would be like the stars of the heaven. As I said, my grandfather Isaac and my grandmother Rebecca made a great start in their spiritual lives. And even though my grandmother struggled and, and couldn't have children, Grandfather Isaac prayed, and he asked God to open her womb, and God heard his prayer. In fact, the Lord enabled grandmother to have twins. Can you imagine? One was my father, Jacob. The other was the one who was born first, and that was my uncle Esau. And even though uncle Esau was the oldest, God revealed himself to grandmother Rebecca and told her that my dad would be the one through whom God would fulfill his promises that were first given to my great-grandfather Abraham, that he would inherit the land of Canaan, that a great nation would come from his loins, and that through this nation a great blessing would come to all the people on the earth. I still don't understand how we're going to be such a great blessing to everyone, especially when I look at my brothers, that I'm sure I'm going to understand as I grow older. Somewhere along the line, in spite of God's blessings on Grandfather Isaac and Grandmother Rebecca, they took a wrong turn. Their first major mistake was to consistently show parental favoritism. You see, my granddad, oh, of the twins, he loved Esau. Esau is a very rugged outdoorsman type. He's a big-time hunter. My dad loved to hunt. My grandma of the twins, oh, she really liked my dad the best, my dad Jacob. And my dad was a lot more of a homebody, so him and mom or grandma got along very well. But I'll tell you something, that was the beginning of some really serious troubles in our family. Uncle Esau, he's very rough, he's very tough, he's very worldly. My dad's downfall was that he was really a manipulator. In fact, his name Jacob could be translated chiseler or cheater or deceiver. And that often was true in his life. In fact, he, he tricked Uncle Esau into trading Uncle Esau's firstborn birthright for a bowl of award-winning stew. Can you imagine? Dad admitted to me that he didn't really understand why he did what he did since God had promised him the birthright anyway, even though he was younger than Uncle Esau. But you know how it is. We all do things that are really stupid. At this point, I must tell you that Grandmother Rebecca was a big part of Dad's downfall. As I said earlier, she favored my dad. And one day, she came up with a very sneaky scheme to get Grandfather Isaac to give Dad the family blessing rather than Uncle Esau. And I have to tell you, my dad went along with this terrible plan. You see, Grandfather Isaac couldn't see very well. 
but he still had a great appetite, even though he was elderly and not doing well physically. And one day, he was so hungry, he wanted to have some wild game for a meal, so he sent out Uncle Esau out to the field to do some hunting for him, and he said, hey, listen, Esau, I'm going to give you this promise that if you come back with a good meal, then I am going to pronounce the family blessing on you. And I have to tell you that I think deep down, Grandpa Isaac actually thought he was going to die very soon, and he wanted Uncle Esau to have his blessing, even though God had declared that it really belonged to my dad. Well, it's interesting, Grandmother Rebecca overheard the conversation, and she believed she had to do something to help God. Can you imagine? And that's when she came up with this terrible scheme. While Uncle Esau was out in the field looking for this wild game, doing his hunting thing, Grandmother Rebecca, this is pretty crazy, but she dressed my dad in Esau's clothes. And since Uncle Esau was a hairy guy, and I'm telling you, he was a really hairy guy, she got this idea to put goat skins on my dad's arms and neck to make Grandfather Isaac think it was Uncle Esau. And strange as it may seem, the, the scheme worked. But as you might suspect, when Uncle Esau heard about it, he was livid. The veins were popping out of his neck. And he was walking around vowing he was so hungry that he was going to kill my dad. You know, Dad and I have talked about that event and I'll never forget the warning that he gave me from his own life. He said, son, I've learned this, that one sin often leads to another. You see, grandmother Rebecca had to act quickly to come up with another scheme to deceive grandfather Isaac. So here's what she did. She pretended, just pretended, to be really upset that my dad, Jacob, might marry one of the Canaanite women and she talked grandfather Isaac into sending my dad away to find a wife in the area that my great-grandfather Abraham had lived. Grandmother Rebecca's real reason for the scheme was to keep Uncle Esau from killing my dad. Well, that second scheme worked, but it was the beginning of a lot of trouble for dad. But something good happened in all of that even though dad was actually running for his life. After traveling nearly 50 miles, can you imagine the very first day running from his brother? He came to a place that dad later called Bethel, which really means the house of God. And he was exhausted and he fell asleep just using a stone for a pillow. And while he was sleeping, God appeared to him in a dream, and he repeated the promise that God had made to my great-grandfather Abraham so many years before. And when Dad woke up, he was really shook up, and he immediately realized that God had revealed himself to him in that dream. But something else happened. Dad, for the first time in his life, came to know Yahweh God personally. And he told God that he would serve him, that he would give to God a tenth of all his material possessions. Of course, at that point, Dad only had the clothes on his back because he was running. But he was very sincere 
about that promise. When dad finally arrived in the country of Haran, that's where something special happened. He met my mom, Rachel. Rachel's father was a guy by the name of Laban. And I got to tell you this, when my dad saw my mom, he immediately fell head over heels in love with her. But there was a problem. Mom was the younger sister in the family. And her older sister was a gal by the name of Leah. And it was the custom in our culture to always have the, the oldest one married first before you would marry off the second or the youngest one. As it turned out, Laban deceived my father. Even though my mom was the youngest, he told dad that he would give her in marriage to him if he would work for Laban for seven years. Well, dad really loved mom. And who he agreed to do that? Seven years. I'll work seven years and then I will marry Rachel. Well, those seven years just flew by, even while all that hard labor that he was doing because of his great love for my mom. And when the time came for them to marry, you know, when you had the, the big ceremony and the big party and there was a lot of food and there was a, a, a lot of drink, well, Laban, in that dark of the night, tricked my dad. And he gave him Aunt Leah instead. And in the darkness, after all that partying, my dad didn't realize what had happened. I guess you could accurately say the deceiver was deceived. But you can imagine what transpired in the morning when he woke up and he realized that he'd been tricked. I have to tell you, he was terribly angry and also very sad at the same time. But as dad recounted for me what had happened, he also warned me, son, I've learned this, what goes around comes around. He really believed that he was reaping what he had sowed when he and grandmother Rebecca had deceived grandfather Isaac and stole the blessing from uncle Esau. But you know, Laban wasn't through. He had another deceitful plan. As my dad said, well, I wanted to marry Rachel. I wanted to marry Rachel. He said, well, look, if you will wait one week, I will let you also marry Rachel, but only if you will work for seven more years after that. Well, I got to tell you, my dad loved my mom so much that he accepted Laban's offer. I'm sure you can see what's coming. It has never been in God's ideal plan for a man to marry more than one woman. It always leads to jealousy, and that's what happened between mom and Aunt Leah. Two sisters in the same house married to the same man. To make matters worse, Aunt Leah could have children, but mom couldn't. And, and Leah very quickly had four sons. My oldest brother, Reuben, my brother, Simeon, my brother, Levi, and my brother, Judah. And I got to tell you, all this time as Leah gives birth to these four sons, my mom was dying on the inside. See, being barren, it, it was a tremendous stigma in our culture. And I got to tell you, my mom got so jealous 
that she concocted a plan. And she took her maid servant, whose name was Bilhah, and presented her to my dad to be a surrogate to have children. And Bilhah very quickly gave birth to my brother Dan and to my brother Naphtali. Meanwhile, Aunt Leah was having trouble getting pregnant. And she said, you know what? This isn't fair. I got to do something about this. And so she took her maidservant, a gal by the name of Zilpah, and gave her to dad to be a surrogate to have children. And my brother Gad and my brother Asher were born to her. And then another big shock happened, and that is that Leah was able to get pregnant again. And she gave birth to my brother Issachar and my brother Zebulun and my only sister Dinah. I guess you could call it competitive childbearing. Well, I got to tell you, my mom got very depressed because she had yet to been able to be pregnant. And she had no one to turn to but God. I mean, she tried everything else. She tried anger. She tried manipulation. She tried control. And in her complete depression and despair, she prayed and she asked God for a child. And that is when I was conceived. Sixteen years later, when we returned home to Canaan, mom gave birth to my little brother, Benjamin, but that's also how mom tragically died. It was just a year ago, and I'm sure you can understand that I'm still grieving. I don't remember much before I was three, but I do remember some really painful things that happened to dad. Laban talked dad into staying with him another six years after he'd worked off those 14 years, even though dad wanted to return to the land of his roots to Canaan. One of the greatest tragedies in dad's life involved my only sister, Dinah. See, it was a pretty day, and Dinah was out for a walk, and a man named Shechem, one of the Canaanite leaders, grabbed her and raped her in a field. And this event revealed another trait of my dad, Jacob, and that was, to be honest, he tended to be passive at key moments when he should have acted. Despite my dad finding out my sister was raped, he did nothing. This by itself was painful, but on top of it, my brothers Simeon and Levi decided to continue the family tradition of deception. Oddly enough, Shechem wanted to marry my sister, And Simeon and Levi convinced the men of Shechem City that they were open to him marrying into our family. They said Shechem could marry Dinah if, oh, it was a big if, if all the men agreed to be circumcised like us. It was a dirty trick. When the men of Shechem City all got circumcised, you know, that's a painful thing to have happen when you're an adult. While they were in pain and incapacitated, Simeon and Levi sneaked into each man's home and ran them through with a sword. It was very bloody. They not only slaughtered all the men, but they also plundered their homes. And despite such a grievous act, and maybe in part because dad realized his sons were being deceptive and manipulative like he had been, he again went passive. 
the only concern he raised was that this might make him look bad in the eyes of others and that maybe people might get revengeful and he could lose some of his stuff. After that, we returned to Bethel, the place where dad first met God in a dream. And this was a spiritual turning point in my dad Jacob's life. He built an altar there and he worshiped Yahweh. In fact, it was there that God changed dad's name from Jacob to Israel. And that's why they call us the children of Israel today. Now, I wish I could say everything was smooth from there, but it wasn't. I saw firsthand in my life why God designed marriage as monogamy rather than polygamy. Oh, I'm telling you, the ramifications of four wives and all those kids under one roof. Not long afterward, my oldest brother, Reuben, and I'm, I'm a little embarrassed to share this with you, but my older brother, Reuben, decided to have sexual relations with my stepmom, Bilhah. Maybe dad was still grieving over the death of my mom, Rachel, but despite being fully aware of what transpired, dad was passively quiet. He did nothing about it. As you can imagine, my brothers were increasingly growing more worldly and unruly and basically out of control. My mom, Rachel, had been my dad's favorite by far. When she died giving birth to Ben, my dad was deeply heartbroken at losing the love of his life. And if I were going to be honest with you, I would have to say that I've known for a while that I am my dad's favorite kid. I think part of the reason is that he was old when I was born, but also I am a compliant kid more of a mama's boy like my dad was. Quite a contrast to my wild brothers who are hard to handle. And I also believe that my specialness to dad probably quadrupled when my mom died. Recently, dad gave me the coolest coat. It's an ultra expensive, full length, long sleeved coat embroidered with multiple colors. It truly is a regal robe that makes me feel like a king. Ranking in the family is a big thing in my culture, and I'll tell you, I knew the significance of my technicolor coat. It indicated a preferred place as the future leader of the family. Although I am the 11th son, it means I'm in line to get the biggest chunk of the family inheritance. Being the firstborn of my dad's favorite wife, that makes sense to me. It's weird, though. I have 11 brothers, and 10 seem to hate my guts. Our family does a lot of outside heavy labor. You know, a, a guy can't get sweaty wearing a coat like this dandy. And my dad seems to understand that. He helps me avoid working with my brothers in the field. He often will send me out to check on them to see how they're doing. I'm sure that bugs them, but one thing is certain, I'm not giving this coat up. Hopefully, things will get better in our family in the days ahead. Now, what we've done as we've shared that little story of Joseph is we have basically summarized Genesis chapter 12 through Genesis chapter 36, and now we are set up in our study to pick up the story 
from there. By the way, you have an assignment this week, and that would be to read uh, Genesis 37 to 40. 37, 38, 39, 40, four chapters, so that you can join in as we look at the story of Joseph. But as I said, we want to end today with some key principles. There are principles we're going to see woven throughout the story of Joseph. And here are some of those principles. First of all, God is bigger than the worst dysfunction. And some of us, all of us come out of some dysfunction in our family. Some of us have had some massive dysfunction. But one of the things we learn from the life of Joseph is God is bigger than the worst dysfunction. Another principle we're going to see is that God works mysteriously. Have you ever noticed that? He doesn't do things the way we think we would do things. And we're going to see that setbacks with God are actually setups for God's plan for our life. Another key principle we're going to see is that God is good. God is good, yes, even when we have hardship in our life. At times, we may not feel it, we may not understand it, we may not appreciate it, but God is good. And then we're going to see in our study that there are three P's that we're going to see are prominent as we track through the story of the life of Joseph. And those three P's are God's providence, God's presence, and God's promises. Those three P's are so important when we find ourselves in the middle of hardship in our life. And when we have a view to God's providence, God's presence, and God's promises, we will be better equipped to view whatever crisis we may be in as a faith builder for the future. Now, as we face hardship, I want to just close with a passage of Scripture that I think is very helpful in that regard. It comes from Isaiah chapter 46, verses 3 and 4. And what I would invite you to do right now, trust me here, just go ahead and close your eyes. And these are the words of God from Isaiah 46, 3 and 4. And I want you to listen to them. Listen to me. I created you and have cared for you since before you were born. I will be your God throughout your lifetime until your hair is white with age. I made you and I will care for you. I will carry you along and save you. Let's just pray together as Greg comes to lead us in our closing song this morning. Father, as we pray, we, we just realize that some of us are right in the middle of hardship in our life. Some of us are no doubt coming out of some hardship. But we would pray that you would minister to every single one of us as we go through this study on hope through hardship with the life of Joseph. And Father, for any who may be here today and right now, you're right in the middle of things and there's actually tears, there's a lot of concern, there's worry, there's fretting. I would pray that you would give them the courage just to say to you right now, you know what, God, I don't understand it, but I'm willing to trust you. 
I'm willing to wait on you as you work in my life. Father, make this study one that makes a huge difference in our life because we know the promise is you're going to be with us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. 